0: Good morning. Very, very nice to be back here at First Presbyterian Church, and thank you, Reverend Miller, and thank you, Chuck Duggan, for the invitation to be here to close out your mission conference this Sunday. First Presbyterian Church, Macon, and I'm not just saying this, has really been one of our longtime favorite churches. This is a church that not only gives to missions and gives to work in Africa and gives to what we're doing at African Bible College, but you, you send your people. Your people are involved. And I want to say thank you to Chuck and his wife Ellen for coming out twice in the last three years to Malawi to help us with different projects. Uh, and thank you for the team you brought in August. I don't know how many of you are aware, but Chuck Duggan brought with him Steve Hensley and his wife. There's Kathy sitting there. And Jim Self. Okay, there he is, Jim Self. Hey, what a, a great team they brought last August. This was a hard-working team. In Africa, if you can imagine, our three college campuses are spread out throughout the continent. Liberia in West Africa, Uganda right on the equator, Malawi down in Southern Africa. All three of them have huge electricity issues and challenges none greater than where we are in Malawi. At the time their team came, our electricity was going off anywhere from eight to 12 hours a day. On average, from September through December of this year, our electricity averaged over 12 hours a day of being off. It was off more than it was on. And so Chuck Duggan and their team came and put eight, tried to put eight, I think Jim, you got through about six of them before you left. This was a hard working team that did a great job in the time that they were there. But thank you for that. But thank you for going way back to when Don Blackburn and his wife, Nancy, yeah, Nancy Blackburn came over in 1995 to help put up our, our radio station. Janet Blackburn, it's uh, uh, Charlie and Nancy Duggan came over in 1999 to help us put up our our mission hospital, put in our first x-ray machine, which... Dr. Duggan, it's still working. They're still using that almost 20 years later, and it wasn't a new machine when he brought it. But uh, that many times during the time that we've been in Malawi, our mission hospital, that's the only working x-ray machine in the entire capital city. Well over a million people would have lines down the corridor waiting to use Dr. Duggan's x-ray machine. But thank you very much for the way your people are involved. And in the case of like Bill and Nancy Barnes, They couldn't go, but they said, Lord, here am I, take my daughter. And they sent their daughter to work at the ABC Christian Academy for a year. So we are very grateful for your involvement, your heart for missions, not just in Africa, but in Mexico. I don't know how many of you know, but Chuck's getting on a plane this afternoon to go to Mexico for two weeks, and I know you're tremendously involved in Haiti. Uh, And as Reverend Miller mentioned, your work here in Georgia and in Macon, but this is how it's supposed to be. This is what God intended for his community to be his people, to be taking care of their people in their own towns, their own cities, but also going around the world. The, the great Anglican evangelical leader, John Stott, back in the 1970s, he said, we serve a global God. And because we serve a global God, we need to have a global vision. And I really believe your church, more than almost any church I know, has not just a missional heart, but you genuinely have a global vision. So thank you very much. I'm here to encourage you this morning, and we'll be reading out of Psalms 135. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bible to Psalm 135, is a passage that I'll be reading a few verses from there this morning. But the title of the message this morning is, Go Where There Are No Roads. And this is a good title because good roads in Africa are a problem. Going way back to the early 1970s, my parents and our family, my parents had seven children at the time, moved to Africa in 1970 when I was six years old. The very first mission station that we stayed on way in the sapo rainforest of southern Liberia, there was literally no road to that mission station and we would fly in on a little Cessna 185, and we lived in a bamboo mat house. There was no bathroom in the house, there was a long drop outside, there was no running water. Uh, they would bring waters in pans, and we would bathe in pans in a closet in that bamboo mat house. That's where we lived the first seven years that we were in Africa. My dad did put in the first road to that mission station. In fact, they called it the Jack Chin Highway. It almost killed him. It was a six mile road. The closest government, they called it the government highway, which was just a dirt road. So how you can call that a highway, I don't know. But it was six miles from there. and It took Dad two years to bulldoze a road into the mission. But it was through swamps. And so we had a Toyota Land Cruiser with a winch on the front. I think most people in America, they don't know why there's a winch on the front of a Jeep. They think, oh, maybe that's to pull your deer out of the bush after you shoot it. Or, or, or maybe that's a pull a stump out of the, your front yard uh, at your house. You know why the winch is on the front of a land cruiser? It's because when you get stuck in the swamp, and most of that six-mile road that my dad put in was through swamps, when you get stuck in the swamp, you take that winch out, and that was my job, and my twin brother, I have an identical twin brother that's spoken at your mission conference here, Palmer, would walk through the mud up to our knees with that cable, wrap it around the biggest tree you could find, and then you pull the Jeep along the cable. That's why the winch is on the front of the vehicle, not on the back. And then you go to the next tree and hook it up, and you pull it to the next tree. But 30, 40 years later, roads are still a problem. To our college where we are now in Liberia, our college campus is up in the mountains in Yekepa. But the last three hours, you're on a dirt road. My twin brother, Palmer, he's a pastor in Phoenix, Arizona, was taking a team. He had 20 or 30 uh, people from his church, and he had rented motorcycles for them to take from the last town where the pavement ended, which is a three-hour drive on the dirt. He had hired 30, 20, or 30 motorcycles from the motorcycle taxi guys. They use motorcycles as taxis in Africa. And they were going to use those motorbikes to go out into the villages from our mission in Yekepa to pass out shoes and clothes and Bibles and literature to villages. So they're driving that last three hours on motorcycles. It was getting dark, and one of the motorcycles didn't have headlights. So my twin brother told this guy, he said, look, he said, I'm driving the Jeep. He said, everyone else has lights, but since you don't have lights, you drive right next to my window. You drive next to me, and you can use my lights. Well, that worked great for my twin brother who's driving the Jeep, but this guy really couldn't see the road and in front of them you have these sinkholes. When you go over a swamp, the bottom of the road just caves out and there was literally a sinkhole half the size of this platform, half the size of a swimming pool in the road. My twin brother dodged that when he saw it, left the motorcycle guy in the dark, boom, down into the hole, disappeared The, the rider, the bike, everything into the sinkhole in the middle of the swamp. All of that to say, this is an appropriate title for my message this morning, Go Where There Are No Roads. Roads are a big problem in Africa. But this morning I wanted to talk about what does it mean for us to go where there are no roads. It means going where you're not comfortable. It means going when it's not convenient for you. It means going wherever there are people who are lost, and where people are hurting and that's what I wanted to talk about this morning but the title of my message actually comes from a letter that David Livingston wrote go where there are no roads David Livingston a lot of people don't realize this was supposed to be a missionary to China he had made a commitment to go with China Inland Mission to be a missionary doctor to China but before he could leave Scotland they started the opium wars in China, and so he was stuck there waiting for the wars to end. He's in his hometown of Blantyre, Scotland, when a missionary from from South Africa, his name was Robert Moffat, came and spoke at David Livingston's church, and it was on a Sunday night. And Robert Moffat said something that night that David Livingston couldn't get out of his heart. Robert Moffat said, he said, From our mission and crewmen which is up on the high veld in South Africa overlooking the Limpopo River up near Botswana. He said, from our mission in Krumen, he he said, we can see the smoke of a thousand villages that have never heard the name Jesus Christ. Livingston couldn't get that out of his heart, and so he went and found Robert Moffat. He said, I want to go back with you to Africa, and he sat down and wrote China Inland Mission. He said, I'm sorry, I'm going back to Africa with Robert Moffat. And so from Kruman, from Robert Moffat's mission, is where David Livingston started going up into the interior of Africa, where he found the great Zambezi River, where he found Lake Victoria and Victoria Falls. He even found Lake Malawi, where we are today. He called it Lake Nyasa, which at the time just meant lake water. But but that's why they renamed it Malawi later on. He said, what is this? They said it's water. He named it it Lake Nyasa. He found uh, Mount Kilimanjaro. And he wrote about these things back to his mission organization, the London Mission Society. And people in England were reading his stories about all the things that he had discovered in the heart of Africa. So his mission organization wrote him a letter. They said, David Livingston, they said, Please tell us if there is a good road to where you are, we would like to send somebody to come and help you. Livingston's response was very famous. He said, If the person you are sending needs a good road, don't send them. I need someone who is willing to go where there are no roads. And so that's where the title of my message comes from. Go where there are no roads. Go where it's difficult. Go when it's not convenient. Go where people are lost and hurting. And the passage that we are going to read this morning, Psalm 135, is an important passage because... This is actually the passage of Scripture that David Livingston's mother read to him the morning that he was leaving for Africa. He got up early that morning. It was November 16, 1840. And his mother and his sister made him breakfast. They sat around the table. His father came down. They had breakfast together. She read this passage of Scripture, Psalm 135. And then his father walked him to the train station in Blantyre, Scotland. He got on the train... He left for Africa. He would never again in this life ever see his mother, his sister, or his father again. But this is a passage that they read that morning when he was leaving for Africa. Starting at verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise him, you servants of the Lord. And what you're, what you're going to see as we read through this passage is exactly what the theme of your missions conference is. Declare his glory among the nations. This is what God wants. This is God's desire that his name is known, that praises are sung to him from every corner of the world. And that's what David is saying in this passage. Praise him, you servants of the Lord. Verse 2 You who minister in the house of the Lord and those in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. We don't say it enough. We don't say enough, our God is a good God. Our God has done good things to us. Have we ever stopped and told somebody that? God is good. And that's what David is saying here. And then at the end of verse 3, he says, sing praises to his name, for that is pleasant. We're able to listen this morning. I turned around to Chuck as, as we were singing this morning. I said, wow, that was a new song. I said, that was fantastic. That, I don't think that was in the Trinity hymnal. But thank you for singing a new and a pleasant song. We serve a God that we can sing praises to, and it can be something pleasant to our ears. I'll never forget when, when Kathy and Steve came with Chuck in August. The first meal that they had at our house was in the evening. And just as we sat down, we're out on our, our front porch, and we're just about to bow our heads to pray. ...when the mosque, which is just 200 meters from our front gate at African Bible College, started up... ...and, and, and the Muzin starts sing, uh, saying, chanting the Adin, the evening prayer... oh tell ...and he starts this chant and Kathy's sitting right next to me and her eyes are getting this big... ...and I think Kathy's probably seen it on TV but didn't realize people really do this when you leave America... And so we had to stop. It was so loud sitting out there on our front porch. We couldn't say a blessing until the, the, the mosque was done with their evening chant. And when he was done, Kathy says, well, I don't know if I can eat now. That was the most disturbing thing I've ever heard in my life. It's not pleasant. It's not glorifying like our praises. And that's what David is saying here. Sing praises to his name for that is pleasant. Then go down to verse 15. For the idols of the nations are silver and gold. They're made by human hands. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. Nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all of those who put their trust in them. Where I grew up in Liberia, when I was a young boy, and my father was putting in that six-mile road from our mission station through the swamp out to the government road, there was a little village along the road called Pobley's Town. And there was an old man there called Old Man Jawi. And Old Man Jawi, his house was up on a hill and it would leave his house from the hill as our road went by, it went into a swamp. And many times my dad would have to stop with the men, dig out, put trees in the roads, things for us to drive over to get through the swamp. So we would stand in front of Old Man Jawi's house waiting for my dad to repair the road. And old man Jawiya, nice old gentleman, but in the back of his house, he had a little little hut that he had made out of fat siding and a grass roof. It was up on stilts, and inside of it was a little stone-carved idol. And as kids, we would look in there, and we would ask him, old man Jawiya, what can this thing do for you? He said, oh, this thing is protecting me we said, how is it protecting you? He says, if I don't give him things, bad things happen to my family. And so there, there was a little ledge on the front of the house, and he had a bowl of rice and some oil and little palm nuts. And we would say, can, can this thing inside here eat this food? He said, I don't know if he can eat it, but he gets very angry if I don't put the food there. And as kids, we thought it was funny. But that's exactly what da- what David is describing here. Those who worship these kinds of things will be like them and then in verse 19 he says all you israelites praise the lord house of aaron praise the lord house of levi praise the lord you who fear him praise the lord praise be to the lord from zion to him who dwells in jerusalem praise the lord well this was god's divine plan this is a wonderful psalm because this is what god wanted from all eternity This is the goal of mission. This is our driving force behind mission. God wants us to be passionate and committed about making his name known in every corner of the world so people all over the earth can sing praises to him. Now, David Livingston, he literally went to places in Africa where there were no roads. But what does that mean to us today? What does that mean for us to go where there are no roads today? Well, first of all, it means going where it's not easy going where you're not comfortable as i was preparing to speak here i was trying to think what's the most uncomfortable place that i've been in africa and i really believe it's when i was a young boy 10 or 12 years old my mother had a little clinic that she would run off our back porch and she was a specialist in treating leprosy you know, there was a nearby leper colony that was about 25 miles away. She so had taken special courses in Louisiana about how to identify and how to treat lepers. So very often on the weekend, we would drive 25 miles through the bush to this leper colony. It was called Doison Leper Colony. And they had a church. My mother would treat the lepers, and many of them were dealing with infections all the time, fingers, digits. But all over their body, they would get sores that wouldn't heal. On the weekend, on Sunday morning, my father would preach in their church, and as a young boy, this was tremendously uncomfortable, to be in the tropics, in the heat where it's hot, in a small church building like this, but with twice as many people, and almost all of them lepers. Now, you read in the Bible about what lepers look like, and they're told to keep at a distance because people didn't know how you contracted leprosy. And so, you know, lepers lose digits and they lose, uh, uh, they lose the features of their face. The cartilage breaks down and their eyes sag. You can see the redness around their eyes and their nose caves in. What you don't read about, what you don't know is about the smell. Almost every leper there is dealing with sores that aren't being treated or that are infected. And now you get all these people in a hot church building on a Sunday morning and it smells. And as a kid, we would be horrified when mom and dad would say, we're going to on Leper Colony this weekend because we knew we were going to have to sit through church there. A tremendously uncomfortable place. Go where it's not easy. Number two, go when it's not convenient. I know how busy people are here in America. When Chuck and Ellen Duggan came to Malawi three years ago, we had a team there from First Presbyterian Church in Jackson. 20 or 21 people from our church, from our Sunday school class where Laura and I have been members for over 25 years. It literally took that Sunday school class 25 years to find a time when it was convenient for all of them to come. People are very busy. I've told Chuck and I've told other people ever since then that are organizing mission trips, don't let the people pick the date. They'll never find one date where all eight people can go at the same time. You pick the date and you say, this is when we're going, sign up if you want to go. But that's because our lives are very busy, so many times it is inconvenient to go do God's work. I was thinking back to when was the most difficult and inconvenient time for our family, and it would have been in 2004. We had just started two years earlier building our third African Bible College campus up in Uganda. It's about 1,500 miles north of where we are in Malawi. It's right on the equator. We had sent two builders there, two American builders. One had worked down in South America. But they had faced every problem and challenge you can imagine building a new college campus in Uganda, in on the equator, in the bush. And the whole project was stalled. And so that spring, I decided and told Laura, I said, as soon as the kids are done with school here in Malawi, we need to travel up to Uganda. I need to spend a year we 're supposed to open that campus two thousand and five. We had one year left. They had only started on six buildings We are supposed to have fourteen buildings done and, and they were, none of the buildings were done. none of them were livable in I said two years we've, it's a lot of time, a lot of I need to go there myself. So we were planning to go, and that 's when my wife delivered our fifth child, uh, March of two thousand and four. But the delivery went. Badly, She was bleeding. We had to medevac Laura down to South Africa from Malawi. She was in the hospital 13 days. Uh, She had peritonitis. So when she recovered, instead of going back to Malawi, I said, well, let me take you to your mother in San Diego. So we flew to San Diego to let her recover for the rest of the summer there. While we were in California, I told her, I said, Laura, I said, we don't need to go to Uganda. In fact, even my twin brother called me from Phoenix and said, Paul, you need to just stay You've been in Malawi three years. Take your furlough now. You don't need to go to Uganda right now. So I told my wife, I said, Laura, I said, we don't don't need to go right now. We can stay here in the States. And we had every reason to stay. She was suffering. But she was recovering, and it was her decision. She said, Paul, she said, that's exactly what Satan would like us to do. And she was right. We have found over the years that we've been in Africa— that early on in a new project, early on in a new program, early on in a new work, is when Satan likes to really attack and really make things difficult and cause people to be discouraged and cause them to second-guess themselves. It's easy to quit. You haven't done a whole lot yet. Why don't you just turn this around? She said, this is exactly what Satan would like. She said, but we need to stick to our plan. She said, things are difficult, but she said, I think it means that great things are going to happen. So we packed up our family at the end of the summer, August of 04. It was not a convenient time at all. We had five kids, two of them were still in diapers. And so we traveled back to, to Malawi, we went through England. We checked in in California with 20 pieces of luggage, two kids in diapers. We land in Kampala, Uganda. British Airways had managed to lose, this is not a joke, all 20 pieces of luggage which I don't even know how that's possible. So we're off the plane. It's 5.20, 5.30 in the morning. We've got two crying kids in diapers, and it's freezing cold. My wife had been asking me, she's a better planner than me, is it going to be cold in Uganda? I go, no, I've been up there before. I said, it's on the equator. Look at a map. I said, it's it's, it's hot. You don't need anything warm. We get off the plane, it's freezing cold, it's up 4,000 feet of altitude, it's raining, the kids are wet, we get in the car, they drive us to the mission and we, we get in the house and it's just getting light, it's about seven in the morning and I look at my watch and I tell my, my three older kids, Ashley was in 10th grade, Annabelle seventh, Levi was only in first grade. I said, look, I said, hey, we, you got an hour before the first day of school, this is the first day of school at the International School down the road, I said, I can take you guys to school. And they go, w- we don't have anything to wear. My-, my daughter in 10th grade is horrified. She says, Dad, we've been in these clothes for two overnight flights, overnight from California to uh, London, London overnight to Entebbe. She said, Dad, I can't go to school. I go, well, what else are you going to do? We don't have anything to unpack. And I said, nobody wants to miss the first day of school. Come on, get in the car. So my kids reminded me later, they said, Dad, do you remember drawing us a map? We didn't know how to get home. You drew us a map so we could walk back to the house. They didn't know where we lived. So I got them out of the car, got back to the house. Laura's standing out on the front porch with the two babies our first morning in Uganda. And she said, Paul, I don't think that was a very good idea. I said, oh, I said, you know what? Their kids' first day of school is supposed to be hard. They'll get over it. They never have. My, my oldest daughter, Ashley, who was here last week, every time she introduces me to her friends, here's my dad, let me tell you what he did when I was in 10th grade and we landed in Uganda. It wasn't convenient for our family, but if you were to bring Laura here and say, tell me what your greatest year in Africa was, she wouldn't even hesitate. She would say our year that we spent in Uganda building that campus. And God knew that that needed to be done. God knew that we needed to open that campus. So go when it's not convenient. Go when it's not easy. Go where you're not comfortable. And then lastly, go where people are lost and hurting. Dr. Jim Baird, who used to be the pastor here, he has a famous saying. He was a board member of African Bible colleges for many, many years. But Dr. Baird liked to say, there's someone hurting on every pew. First he would say there's no such thing as a perfect family. And then he would say there's someone hurting on every pew. In other words, there's people hurting here in this church. There's people hurting and lost right here in Macon, Georgia. There's people hurting and lost in every corner of the world. We found this in Malawi after we had been there about ten years that you can't just take care of people's spiritual needs you can't just address people's spiritual needs without also paying attention to their physical needs as we were building the African Bible College campus in the late '80s and early 90s our workers would bring would come to the, our house for treatment they would bring their wife and children and then when we opened the college campus in the mid1990s the students would start coming to our house looking for treatment Laura's not a nurse I'm not a doctor at least not the kind that can do you any good and so we would treat them as we could or we would take them to the local hospital but pretty soon we realized we needed our own mission hospital there and your church was a very important part of starting our first mission hospital there in Malawi it's called the ABC Community Clinic but our labor and delivery ward is called the Dot Lucas Ward where two of my children were born That that is still a very important part of our ministry in Africa. Last year, in fact, we delivered a baby a day. We averaged a baby a day in the Dot Lucas ward. Some of you may remember Dr. Lucas and his wife, Dot. But we also do something there. We have a surgery theater. We have teams come over from Colorado and from California with a group called Operation Smile. I don't know if Dr. Duggan has heard of this surgery group. They're plastic surgeons that repair cleft palates. And here in America, when you imagine somebody with a cleft palate, you imagine a newborn baby. Because that's when we repair cleft palates here. You're born in a village in Africa, there's no one to repair a cleft palate until some surgeon comes along when you're 20 or 30 or 40 years old to repair it. And so they do as many surgeries on adults when these teams come over as little kids. And one of the gentlemen, when he was there, he had his cleft palate repaired and it was severe. And he came back a a week or so later, they took the bandages off and he couldn't believe it. He was so ecstatic, he actually got down on his knees and he he grabbed the doctor's feet and was thanking him. But he he, he couldn't talk properly and he didn't speak English. So the doctors went home, we closed the clinic that evening. He stayed around, he wanted to do something to thank those American doctors and to thank our staff in Malawi. So he stayed and he wrote notes on pieces of paper and then he carefully hung them in the trees around the front of the clinic and the next morning when our medical team came and our our doctors and nurses showed up there's all these notes in the tree and they started taking them down and it was saying thank you for what you've done for me thank you for treating me like a human being my whole life I've been treated like an animal you've made me a real man today and just thanking him over and over what we found is they're lost and hurting people everywhere, and you can't address people's spiritual needs without also paying attention to their physical needs. So go where it's not easy. Go when it's not convenient. Go to where people are lost and hurting. And that's what David Livingston did for 33 years. He actually died in Africa. Some of you know the story. He died in Zambia under an mvula tree. It was, They call it mvula, means a rain tree, and that's where his tent was. The morning that David Livingston died, the gentleman that was helping him, his name was Chuma, went to his tent. He opened the tent, and Livingston was kneeled next to his cot. He had been praying, so he said, oh, I'll leave the doctor alone. He came back a half an hour later. He was still in the same position. He realized that Dr. Livingston had died on his knees. And so he told his friend, he and his friend Susie and Chuma, they realized we need to take Livingston back to his own people. So they wrapped him up in a sailcloth, and they carried him a 1,000 miles to Zanzibar so that he could be buried in England. He's buried at Westminster Abbey. But his heart's not in England. His heart's not in Westminster Abbey. Before they left Zambia, they took Dr. Livingston's heart out, and they said, his heart belongs here in Africa, and Chuma buried it there under that invula tree. But I wanted to finish this morning by reading something that David Livingston wrote in his diary shortly before he went to glory. That is very true. This is what David Livingston wrote. He said, Although I see few results today, future missionaries will see conversions following every sermon. And when they do, may they not forget the pioneers who toiled in thick gloom with few rays to cheer our soul except the hope that flows from faith in the precious promises of of God's word. But he says here, I see few results today. But he says, future missionaries will see conversions following every sermon. What David Livingston wrote here over 150 years ago is 100% true. There's no other time, no other place in history where more people are coming to Christ every day than in Africa. You've probably heard that our numbers as Christians in the West were in decline. There's fewer Christians today in America and Europe than there were yesterday. By 7,000 fewer Christians today in America and Europe than there were yesterday. In Africa, there's over 32,000 new conversions, new believers every single day. There's now a half a billion Christians in Africa. People know that there's a billion people in China. Some people know there's a billion people in India. Very few people know there's a billion people in Africa, but half of them are Christians. Half a billion. There's more Christians in Africa than there are people in America. We only have 350 million people here. So all of that to say, this is the time to push ahead. This is the time to advance what we're doing for God's kingdom. Don't think, though, that there's not a battle going on for Africa. As you know, Africa was called the dark dark continent for a long time. Satan has not given up Africa easily. Every terrorist organization you've ever heard of ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Al-Shabaab, Boko Haram, all of them, all of them are in Africa. There's a battle going on in some of these countries, but the Christians are winning. We're winning in Uganda. We're winning in Malawi. Malawi is a strong Christian country. Liberia is a strong Christian country. But we need to be expanding what we're doing at African Bible colleges. We need to be stretching the, our, our, the pegs of our tent. We need to be reaching more people. Our universities now, we have about 600 students at our three universities. Our goal is to be at 1,000 students in five years and to have 5,000 students in the next 10 years. We need to multiply the number of campuses that we have. There's tremendous need, not just in Africa, but throughout the world. If you hear stories of what God is doing in China, they used to call them underground churches. They don't have to be underground anymore. There's millions of Christians in China. We need to expand what we're doing in missions, not backing off. And so let me encourage you this morning, as your pastor was talking about faith promise and how faith promise works. This is a gift up and above, beyond your normal tithing and giving to your church and to your work here that First Presbyterian Church is doing. It's done by faith, but I'm going to add another word there. It's also going to require sacrifice. I was talking to Chuck Duggan last night, or yesterday, two days ago, about what your goals are for your faith promise. And he said, Paul, unfortunately, our faith promise commitments have been going down, when in fact they need to be going up. We're struggling just to meet our budget. Let me encourage you, in addition to having faith that God will provide, I'm going to add a word there, which is Sacrifice what are you going to give up this year in the next 12 months so that you can give that money to missions and i'm going to tell you one story it's called whittier area community church it's in president nixon's hometown of whittier california the pastor's daughter his name was bill ankerberg his daughter becky came to teach at the abc christian academy where bill and nancy's daughter was teaching my wife runs the day school there in malawi Becky Ankerberg was a graduate of Biola University where Laura and I met in California. But while she was teaching at the day school for a year, she would go over to our hospital in the afternoon and she would help care for the children in our malnutrition ward. We had a small ward in the hospital. It was really just one room. We had 11 beds in there. Many times we'd have 10, 11, 12 babies jammed into one small room whose mothers were suffering or dying from HIV. Most of them were babies born to mothers that were HIV positive. So they were tremendously malnourished. And so Becky Ankerberg would go hold these babies. And she would talk to our doctor there, Mark Borsma from Louisiana. And she said, wouldn't you like to have your own whole children's ward and and just to take care of pediatrics ward here? He says, that would be fantastic. She said, I'm going to tell my dad that that's what you need. He said, that would be wonderful. So she went back. She told her dad. She said, you know, every year you do a Christmas offering. Can you raise money this Christmas to build a pediatric ward for the ABC Hospital in Malawi. So he said, sure. So he called me up. I happened to be in Mississippi at the time. I picked up the phone. I didn't know who Bill Ankerberg was. I've never been to their church. I knew his daughter. knew that she'd been teaching there. had no idea she'd been talking to my doctor in Malawi. And he said, Paul, he said, I hear that you need a pediatric ward in Malawi. I said, yes, we really do. I said, that's a tremendous need we have. We have the malnutrition little room there. He said, well, look, we want to make that our mission offering project this Christmas. He said, how much would we need to tell the people that we need to raise to build a pediatric ward? So I'm on the phone. I haven't done any math. I said, well, look, the building's going to be at least 100000 probably 60000 for equipment, beds. I said, figure 160000 There's a long pause. He said, Paul, the most we've ever raised in one Christmas Sunday is 25000 That's six times more, more than six times more than we've ever raised on a Christmas Sunday. He said, let me talk to the elders. I'll call you back. Three or four days later, he said, okay, that's six times more than we've done before. We're, we're going to challenge our people. He called me two days after Christmas. He said, Paul, before I tell you what we raised this Christmas, he said, I need to tell you two things. One, I'm not a used car salesman. I don't stand up and badger my people to give. He said, I stood up one time, and I told them, I said, if we are going to raise six times more than we've ever raised in a Christmas Sunday before, everyone here needs to sacrifice something. He said, you need to start thinking about what you can sacrifice this year to give. And so on that Christmas Sunday, they gave everyone an envelope, and they said, don't just put your check in there, don't just put your commitment, don't just put your money, right on the front of the envelope, what did you sacrifice? What are you planning to give up this year so that we can raise some money to build this hospital or this this pediatric ward? He said, Paul, you wouldn't believe what people wrote. He said, some of them wrote, well, our family was going to go on vacation this year, but this is what we're going to spend, and we're going to give that instead. We had an extra car in the driveway we didn't use much. We sold that, and here's our money. We have an RV that we barely use. We sold that. Our kids sold chocolate bars at school. Our kids ran a car wash. They got their children involved. One of them, the pastor said, every day when I drove past her house in the afternoon, the kids were selling lemonade for a mission hospital in Africa. He said all of it, and you, you, he said go to our website when I get off the. Phone. I went to their website. It was page after page. They had taken everything that everyone had written on those envelopes and put it on their website, page after page. Even the LA Times came and did an article about the church. He said, Paul, we didn't raise six times more. He said, we raised 15 times more than what we've ever raised in a Christmas Sunday. They had raised over a half a million dollars, over 500,000. Their goal was only 160 because people were willing to sacrifice to give to mission. So let that be my challenge to you. And let me just say as I finish, that's already been done in this church and most of you don't know it. There's a young lady sitting in the back named Olivia Thompson. It's a granddaughter of Lowry and Susan, uh, Lowry Tribble and Susan Tribble. And last Christmas, uh, it's actually a year Christmas of 2016, about a year and three months ago, we sent out a letter saying that we needed to build a girl's dormitory, a lady's dormitory in Malawi. So Lowry and... Susan Tribble got that letter in the mail, and they read it, and it described how difficult it is to be a commuter student in Africa because when they go home, they don't have water, they don't have electricity, they don't have computers, they don't have Internet. It's very hard on our students who are commuters. We have over 100 students that commute every day. The day after the Tribbles read that letter, their daughter, son, Brad and Kathy Thompson called them up And they said, you know, we want to tell you a story about our our daughter Olivia, your granddaughter. We had asked our other children what they want for Christmas, and they had already told us, but Olivia had never said what she wanted for Christmas. And so we sat her down and said, well, what would you like for Christmas? And she said, you know, I have everything that I need. She said, why don't you give that to someone else who really needs that? And so Brad and Kathy called Brad. uh, called lowry and susan and said let me tell you what our granddaughter did who is challenged with downs and if that little girl's heart and that touched lowry and susan they said paul we want to give a gift in her honor and her their gift made it possible for us to build this girl's dormitory we've already broken ground we'll be using it within a year But that's somebody who is willing to give up what every kid looks forward to all year is Christmas morning. And she said, I have everything I need. Give it to someone else who needs it. What can we sacrifice? What can we give up this year? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Well, dear Lord, we do know that you own the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything we see is part of your kingdom. It's all yours. Lord, the question is, how much are we going to give back to you? We thank you for this church. We thank you for their tremendous heritage in missions. We thank you for their heart for serving others. We thank you for their heart for sharing the gospel with people who are lost. We know that your hand is on this congregation. But we also know that there's a tremendous obligation to extend the tent pegs of our tent and to do more for your kingdom, to grow what we're doing, to make your name known to people that are lost. We pray, Lord, that you will bless this church, that you will enable them. We thank you for Chuck Duggan and his team that leave today. We pray that your hand will be on them as they travel, that everything they do, everything they say will bring glory to your name. In Christ's name we pray, amen.